Let's get after it. Grab your Bibles. Uh, last week we went through Genesis 4, so guess where we're at today? Ge- yeah, Genesis 5. There's like... Tricky? No, it's simple math. Uh, that's where we're at. So grab your Bibles, Genesis chapter 5, turn there. And while you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Um, do you ever get overwhelmed with the wickedness in our world? Okay, we've got, got some people wanting to share right now. That's Like you watch the news, or not even in the news, like your own circles, your own experiences, your own family. Like sometimes it's just the frustration level or the overwhelmedness with like, why, why are we dealing with this? Oh, that's a real headline? Oh, that really happened? Oh, this is still going on? And you just like get overwhelmed with the wickedness of our world. Now, along with that, how many of you would say that you feel so outnumbered in our world? Where you feel like, I have these convictions, I want to honor God, but it seems like the rest of everyone else doesn't. You know, I want to live this way and everybody else wants to live that way. Or I think this and I'm trying to hold to the Bible and everybody thinks that and they think I'm crazy and you just kind of feel outnumbered a little bit. Anybody? Okay, you're with me here. Well, can you imagine how the uh, original audience to Genesis would feel when it comes to those questions? Because as we talked about before, Moses wrote Genesis and the original audience is these wandering Israelites that just kind of came out of slavery in Egypt and the corruption and idolatry of Egypt and now they're going into the promised land with the Canaanites and all the pagan idolatry there and it's, it's literally all around them and you're like who in this world follows and loves the true God it's like only us only us and everyone else around us is wicked and idolatrous and we just kind of feel outnumbered and overwhelmed how were they supposed to live in those conditions how were they supposed to thrive and be faithful under those circumstances. And, and the question could also be applied to us. How are we supposed to live in the midst of such wickedness? Again, you feel like, I go to work, but, but nobody honors God there. Or, or I send my kids to school, and I just feel like anybody honors God there. Or for some of you, I go home, and I'm in a home that doesn't honor God. Or I watch shows that don't honor God. I listen to music that it's just like everywhere. Like I don't even feel like I got options, right? It's just kind of wickedness permeates everything around. It's like, how are we supposed to live in situations like this? How are we supposed to be faithful in situations like this? What type of people are we supposed to be in the circumstances that we find ourselves in? Well, I think we get some helpful guidance and answers uh, in our text today. So Genesis chapter 6 is actually where we're going to camp out. Uh, and we have Genesis 5, 6, 7, and through eight nineteen. And I'm just going to tell you, we're really only going to focus in on uh, nine verses in, in chapter 6. But I don't want to just skip chapter 5. Um, let me tell you a little bit about chapter 5. So last week, we had chapter 4. We get the story of Cain and Abel. And what you see in there is kind of a contrast of worship between Cain and Abel's worship. And Cain is more of the main character. You kind of get Abel right away, but they're focusing on Cain and his lineage or his descendants. So Cain got lazy in his worship, uh, and then it follows his line, and you get to his great-great-great-grandson who had two wives and mocked God. And basically, if you're lazy in your worship, don't be surprised when your kid's worship is non-existent. I'll just let that sit there for a little bit. And there, there's, there's generational consequences to this. And you see the line of Cain. But then you also see the line of Seth, because chapter 4 ends with introducing Seth, who, who proclaimed the name of the Lord. 
recaptured worship. Well, chapter 5 is one of those chapters in your Bible reading plan that you probably skip. Because it's just a bunch of names, it's genealogy, they're hard to pronounce, but it's like this person lived, and then they died. This person lived, and then died. And they lived a long time. It says how long they lived, and then they died. Now, when you look at Genesis 5, the goal is to get from Adam to Noah. That's what they're doing. But you also see this contrast between Cain and Seth. And it's saying Seth is the faithful line of the worshipful line, and it's keeping God's keeping his promise. And every time you see Somebody died. So-and-so lived, and then they died. So-and-so lived, and then they died. Death is this reminder of the curse. Right back in Genesis 3, this is part of the curse. Every time somebody dies, it's just a reminder, like, this is not the way things are supposed to be. I'm loving the Tennessee support there, right? Right? When, I'm just sorry. I'm just distracted by this wave of orange. Uh, but, hey, anybody that beats Alabama is a friend of mine. So... <laughs> Uh, there's like a few Alabama fans in here. I don't care if you're offended by that. I really don't. You have, you have had your fun. You've won enough. All right. Genesis 5. So every time somebody dies, it's like a uh, reminder of the curse. Reminder of the curse. But every time somebody's born, reminder of the promise. Reminder of the promise. That the promise is still alive, right? And God is going to keep his promise and see that a descendant of Eve is going to come into this world and bring salvation. So you see this, and it's getting us from Adam to Noah. And then you get to chapter 6, and I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, chapter 6, there's a lot of challenging stuff in our text, and we're going to address it kind of. We're going to do a flyby. I don't want to dodge it, but it's not the main point, and I don't want to get lost there. Uh, and I'm going to assume uh, that, that most of you, even if you don't have a church background, are somewhat familiar with the story of Noah and the ark and the flood, right? Uh, for some reason, I think it's kind of funny that it's turned into this kind of kid story where it's like, you know, there's animals, there's a rainbow, there's a boat. Uh, but there's like mass destruction and God's judgment on the whole world. So if you want to read that story to your kids at night, you go for it. I mean, sleep well. Uh, but in Genesis 6, we see this flood story. and There's some really challenging stuff in there. But our goal is to understand what faithfulness in the face of wickedness looks like. What does faithfulness in the face of wickedness look like? And where do we find the confidence in God to live out faithful lives in the face of wickedness? Because we can acknowledge, and we already did, that it feels overwhelming and surrounded by the wickedness all around us. And we want to be faithful people, right? Don't you want to be a faithful person, like despite what's going on in this world, that you don't just get sucked into that and kind of bought into those lies? Like you want to be a faithful person. You want your spouse to be a faithful person. You want your kids to be a faithful person. Amen? All right, so let's look at these uh, these verses and see what kind of answers we get. Genesis chapter 6, I'll read the first five verses. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. For he is flesh, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So there's not much to talk about there, but we're going to get on to some other stuff. I'm kidding. It's like, did you read that? Like, this is ridiculous. You kind of feel like, 
I thought I was going to church. I feel like I entered the twilight zone. Like, this is just odd stuff. And I told you at the beginning, right? And we've said this before. If you struggle with weird, you're going to have all kinds of problems in the Bible, right? But we get to this passage, and there's some challenging stuff. Like, the sons of God, uh, okay, having kids with the daughters of men, the Nephilim. What? (laughs) And I'm the pastor, right? This is like, okay, this is confusing stuff. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I do want to say, like, here's some, uh, here's three of the most common interpretations of the scripture. Now, wherever you land, it doesn't change the main point. Now, there can be implications to where you land, but we're not going to talk about that. Um, but here's some uh, most common interpretations of this text. One, uh, when it comes to the Bible, the sons of God sometimes refer to people. Most of the time refer to angels. So you get this one possible view is that the sons of God are fallen angels having kids with human women. And you kind of get this counterfeit incarnation, right? So God's promise is the seed of Eve, and through her is going to come somebody that brings salvation into the world. And Jesus Christ has an earthly mother but a spiritual father. Right, so the devil, in this viewpoint, is trying to bring corruption into the world through earthly women and demonic fathers. And through this kind of crossbreed, you get the Nephilim, who are kind of this demigod-type uh, a race. Now, uh, we don't know a lot about angels. Uh, there's times where Abraham interacted with angels, and he's like, I, I didn't even know, right? Um, can angels and humans crossbreed? I don't think so. Like, there's a lot like in there that doesn't lead us to think that, um, but... Uh, That's a possible uh, interpretation. Another one is demon-possessed men having babies with human women. So in the New Testament, we see that there's demon possession in people. And it's like, okay, angels and humans can't have babies together. They're not even the same kind. Um, But humans can. So you have demon-possessed. Some of you are looking at me like, you're nuts, right? Another, you're like nerding out on this. Uh, You're great. So um, there's this view like demon-possessed men had... uh, babies with with, uh, women. The other uh, popular interpretation is there's a contrast between the line of Cain and the line of Seth, which is kind of fitting to the context of what's been running up here. But you have the line of Cain, which is kind of seen as this rebellious, wicked generation. Then you have the line of Seth, which is more of a godly generation. And as people multiplied, it eventually became where they were intermarrying and having kids, and it just led to wickedness everywhere. And the Nephilim are more of like, hey, these are the people of renown. They're, you know, they're existed in this time and afterwards and always. And there's always these people that are just kind of, they're the jocks, right? They're the big people. They're the ones that kind of take the positions of power. And they're, they're the ones that intimidate everybody. And they, they were there back then as well. Now, you can have your viewpoint and there's implications to those viewpoints, I would encourage you to hold those lightly. I don't think we can really know uh, on the situation. So side note, if you go to your connection group and all you talk about this week is a conversation on the Nephilim, you got issues, right? One, and you might be dodging more important conversations you need to be having. So I don't think we can really know for certain the interpretation of these passages, but it's, a, it's much more clearer why this reference is here about the Nephilim, because there's one other place in Scripture where the Nephilim are brought up, and that's in Numbers 13. Now, that's going to be on the screen, but let me tell you the context of this, because the original audience to this, uh, this letter in Genesis is getting ready to go into the Promised Land, and they send in 12 spies to spy out the land. 
and they bring back the report. And if you grew up in Sunday school, you may remember the song, you know, 10 were bad and two were good, because 10 said we can't do it. Two said we could, Joshua and Caleb. They're like, the Lord is with us. We can do it. He, let's just be obedient to what he said, no matter how scary it is. But 10 of them were like, ain't happening. The Nephilim are in that land. They make us seem like grasshoppers, like we got to face giants. So they are scared to be obedient to God because of these people. So also in that time, they were facing pagan cultures that believed often that their kings were kind of demigods, which makes them more intimidating. So if you see it in that context, you've got a group of people that are about to face their giants, all right? And Noah, or excuse me, Moses is like, well, let me tell you about another time when God's people seemed outnumbered, overwhelmed by wickedness, and have to face giants in their land. And the point he's making is, hey, you can trust God in the face of wickedness. Amen? I mean, that's legit. Like, you can trust God in the face of wickedness. But in the first five verses of this chapter... The main point, don't get lost in all of that. The main point is he's wanting us to understand how wicked things have got. Maybe even like demonically influenced wicked. But I mean, there's wickedness everywhere. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the circumstances. It's like just wickedness everywhere. I'm overwhelmed by it. I'm surrounded by it. I'm outnumbered by it. This is what I got to deal with. And the Lord is going to do something about it. And it says this line in there of, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, his day shall be 120 years. Now that could be, hey, I'm going to change the lifespan of human beings because they're so wicked. I need to put a, a governor on this, right? We can, we can see that. It's like, aren't we glad like people like Hitler don't live for 900 years? You know, it's like, I'm going to limit people's time frame. And because in chapter 5, you got people living 5, 6, 7, 8, 900 years. And after this, the lifespan of people does change, although some people live longer than 120 years for a while, but it's kind of a gradual implementation. Or you could look at that and say, God's saying, hey, you got about 120 years until the flood comes and my destruction is coming upon you. But either way, God is acknowledging the wickedness and he's going to do something about this. But this is what he says, verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and the creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. That is a sobering passage. And you can kind of understand the grief of God of like, I've made this, and it's like, you're breaking my heart. You're rebelling against me. You're running away from me. But that word regret is tricky. It's like, what do you mean by that? Does God regret? Does, does he, is he like feel bad he did this? And it's like, oh, if I could go back, I would do it differently. Because that's what comes to our mind when we hear regret. But if that's the case, that's scary. Because if God can regret in the past, he could probably regret in the future. And if he's just kind of regretting this, maybe in the future he's like, I kind of regret that I saved everybody through Jesus Christ. I'm going to, you know pull back on that one. And if he he regrets, then it's like he's not really sovereign over all the future. He's just God who can kind of interject and try to help things out, but he's not really in control. It's just that doesn't jive with Scripture, like really clear teachings of Scripture throughout the Bible. So what does it mean that God regretted that he did this? Now, sometimes, often, the Bible uses what's called anthropomorphic language for God. I just used a big word 
I wore my glasses. You think I'm smart. (laughs) What that means is it describes like human traits to God. God doesn't regret. People regret. God doesn't regret. But this is being written by people for people to understand what's going on here. And it can, that can be a possibility. But the other thing is that word for regret that's used here is a very complex Hebrew word that doesn't have a great English equivalent. In fact, it's more like an accounting term, like balancing a ledger or checks and balances. So you could interpret or translate the passage that the Lord audited the accounts because he made man on earth. So not necessarily like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that, but I did it. Now I'm going to like get it and fix it and, and redirect it. And he's going to. He's going to bring judgment uh, upon the earth. But there are two verses right after this and before the flood and judgment comes that I want us to focus in on. Verse 8 and verse 9. So you have all this wickedness. You have all this uh, kind of evil throughout the earth. Then you have a contrast in verse 8. But Noah. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, we're going to come back to those two verses and look at them a little bit closer. Um, But I want to go on and just kind of remind you of the rest of the story. Our text technically today goes into the first 19 verses of chapter 8. Um, but let me just refresh your memory on what happens. And I encourage you to read the, uh, later on today or, or this week. So Noah, in contrast to these wicked times, is a righteous man. He's blameless. He walks with God. And God goes to Noah and he says, I want you to build a boat. And he's very detailed and specific on the boat he wants him to build. Like, here's the type of wood I want you to use. Here's how big I want you to make it. Here's how wide I want you to make it. He needs to have a roof. He needs to have a door. Like, he gives him the details. And it's like, I want you to bring animals on this boat, two of every kind. And I'm going to flood the earth. Uh, And now we can have a conversation whether that was a global flood or a regional flood. We can talk about that another time, but don't don't miss the point here. And they they got in the boat. And it says, the Lord shut the door. And then it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And it says in the text that for 150 days, the water prevailed. And then it says again, for another 150 days, the water receded. And then there were some periods of waiting, like Noah would go out and send out a bird. Like, is there any dry ground to live on? The bird would come back. And he'd send out the bird again. Then the bird would come back with like a branch in its mouth. It's like, all right, we're getting somewhere. Then he sent out the bird, and the bird never came back. It's like, all right, it's time, right? But there's some periods of waiting in that. And if you take the 40 days and the 40 nights and the 150 days of prevailing and the 150 days of receding and the periods of waiting, Noah and his family were probably on the ark around a year. Now, I want to be clear We don't believe that this is just a story with a lesson, like just some kind of myth story that has a lesson to it. We believe that this is history with a lesson. Like there was really a Noah, there was really a flood, there was really an ark, and there's a lesson to it. And it's part of God's story that he's telling, and there's a point to that story. The question is, well, what's the point? What's, what's the lesson for us here? What are, what are we supposed to learn? And kind of big picture, the point is, our God will deal with wickedness and he can't be stopped. Our God will deal with wickedness and he can't be stopped. So you Israelites going into the promised land, you're afraid of some giants? I wouldn't be so afraid of some giants. 
You know, the giants are no contest when the Lord fights for his people. Our God will deal with wickedness and he can't be stopped. And also, in the midst of judgment, our God is a gracious Savior who can be trusted. And he knows how to save his people. Or you could put it this way, he knows how to keep his promises. He made a promise back in Genesis 3, and really the storyline from there throughout the whole Bible is God protecting the line of bringing in the Savior of the world. And no sin or no giants are going to stop that. Like God knows how to keep his promises. So our God is a gracious uh, Savior, and our God will deal with wickedness. But there's a so what to this. There's a so what to this. God will deal with wickedness, and he is a gracious Savior. So what? (laughs) So what does that mean for us? Like practically, day in and day out, living our lives. If this is true, what, what difference does that make in how we live in light of that? Well, let's, let's look at this. I think there are four traits of faithfulness in the midst of sinfulness that we see in Noah in this story and looking at the story from other places in Scripture that, that we're going to do. And these four traits show us how we should be living in the face of wickedness in our world. So we want to look at those traits, and then we want to say, well, what's, what's behind those traits? Like, what's, what are those traits built upon? Where does that faithfulness come from? What's the faithfulness built on? What's holding that faithfulness together? So, I know there's a lot. There's already been a lot. Are you still with me? All right, let's go. Uh, Noah's uh, four examples that he gives us to be faithful in the, in the face of wickedness. First, Noah is exemplary in devotion. Noah is exemplary in devotion. The text tells us that Noah walked with God. Now, the Bible talks about other people's devotion to God in different ways, but there's only two people in all the Bible that says that they walked with God. One of them is Noah here in Genesis 6. The other is Enoch in Genesis 5. That they walk, in fact, Enoch didn't even die. He just walked with God, and God took him. So two people were going to get this title that they walked with God. Now, it, it implies it about others, or it says it differently about others, like Zacharias and Elizabeth, who were John the Baptist's parents, said that they were righteous, walking in the commandments of the Lord. But just, just Noah and Enoch, kinda, this is what's told, they walked with God. But here's the thing. If you think that's come kind of like just for super religious people like Noah, we're all commanded to walk with God. In fact, Micah 6.8, you're probably familiar with this text, says, what does the Lord require of you? And that's a question you probably want to lean in on. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Paul commands us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel or to walk by the Spirit. And in the Bible, to walk is describing a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. So to walk with God is to be in relationship with God. It's describing closeness. Like I'm walking with God. It's activity. Like it's not a stagnant thing. It's active. It's describing alignment. I'm in step with God. It's describing direction. We're going in the same direction. It's describing continuousness. This is an ongoing thing. And Noah had a continuous, ongoing, active, close relationship with God. That's what it's saying. So let me just kind of step aside for a second and ask you this question. Do you walk with God? Now hear me now. I didn't ask if you believe in God or not. I asked, do you walk with God? Do you have an active, ongoing continuous, close relationship with God. Could you tell somebody about it? Like, could you describe it? Because it's one thing to say that you believe in God. It's a whole other thing to say that you walk with God. 
And may that be said of us, right? Because if you asked me, hey, Jake, tell me about your marriage. And I said, well, on May 20th, 2001, right? (laughs) Somewhere around that time, Marcy and I made vows. And that's all that I said. I think you would say, like, I think you're missing the, really the heart of the question. I didn't say, tell me about your wedding. I said, tell me about your marriage. Like, tell me about your relationship. Tell me about your, your companionship. You know, Wednesday nights, all the kids go to youth group, date night. Tell me about the shows you watch. Tell me about the meals you enjoy. Tell me about the inside jokes. Tell me about, like, tell me about your relationship. And when it comes to our relationship with God, we're not always looking for you to, tell, to describe the terms of your conversion, that you agree with a set of doctrinal principles. Tell me about your relationship with God. Tell me about your active, close, ongoing relationship with God. So here, here's something for you, for you, your connection group, or if you're not in a connection group, to grab some Christian friends. Describe what walking with God looks like for you. Describe, explain your relationship with God. And remember the context. These are wicked times. Everybody's wicked, but Noah is walking with God. Another way to put that is everybody's walking in a different direction than Noah. Noah is countercultural. Noah is going against the grain, which, which brings us to our next point. Noah is exemplary in boldness and courage. To the, to the audience here, the original audience, the wandering Israelites, one of the things that got repeated often to them was be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. If you ever read Joshua over and over again, be strong and courageous. Now, why do they keep telling these people to be strong and courageous? Because they're being told to do hard, scary things that demand faith, right? I know that all you know in life is being a slave and you have no military training and no weapons, but we're going to go in and take this land. So everybody grab your trumpet, <laughs> And we're going to walk around this fortified city for seven days. And when it crumbles, charge in. Excuse me? <laughs> and be strong and courageous. <laughs> you know, go, you are grossly outnumbered. Go get them. Be strong and courageous. I mean, that's, that's the command. Because following God takes, is scary. So, so listen to me, church. Following God in a wicked world is not for the timid coward that just wants to be liked by everyone and fit in. You with me there? I mean, look at Noah's situation. He spends the century of his life building something that communicates to the whole world, God is coming to judge you and destroy you. I don't think that gets you good seats in the lunchroom. I love how Peter puts it in 2 Peter. He says this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, a herald of righteousness to herald something, like the verb to herald, is to proclaim. So if you're going to herald the gospel, you're going to proclaim the gospel. But a herald, like a noun, is someone who carries an official message from authority. So if you say, I'm a herald of the king, that means I am from the king and I'm here to proclaim something that the king wants me to proclaim and it comes with the authority of the king. 
Noah is a herald of righteousness for God. He is there to proclaim righteousness to a wicked world. Now, how do you think a wicked world loves the message of righteousness and holiness? Not the show they want to watch, right? But that's Noah's life. Like he's there to herald, to proclaim righteousness and godliness to a wicked world. And he's not winning any popularity contest. And that's his life that he's devoted to. Church, faithfulness in the face of wickedness takes boldness. Faithfulness in the face of wickedness takes boldness. Now, this does not mean that you have permission to go home and be a jerk on Facebook. Right? Like you just say anything you want and be like, well, I'm being bold. No, you're being a jerk. Right? And some of us need to hear that. But I feel, it seems to me, the bigger problem is that too many Christians just crave wanting to be liked. Just wanting to fit in. I want your approval. I want your acceptance. I want you to think highly of me. So anything controversial, I'm not going to say. Anything challenging, I'm not going to say. Anything about holiness, I'm not going to say. I just want you to approve of me. I want you to like me. I want to fit in. And that's what happened to the Israelites. They get into this new land, and they want to be like the other nations. We want a king like the other nations. And then you start worshiping the gods of the other nations. Right? It just kind of pulls you into corruption. Guys, wicked times need need courageous people. Wicked times need courageous people. And let's let's face it, in the Word of God, it is full of controversial, counter-cultural truths that the world hates. And we're to herald it. How's that gonna go? We're to herald it, we're to proclaim it, and the world hates it. Do you got courage to do that? Do you got courage to say, like, yeah, I believe that. That's where I'm at. Even though the world would despise it. Church, listen to me. And I say this because I care. Stop caring so much about other people's approval. Stop caring so much about other people's approval. And that's just not like a condoning thing. Like, stop it. I'm saying there is good news with that. You don't have to have other people's approval when you have the approval of God. Right? You are free from that. Live free from that. Stop trying to be like everybody else. Or, or let me put it this way. Stop trying to fit into a wicked world. You know, watching what everybody watches. Parenting how everybody parents. Doing what everybody's doing. Dressing how everybody's dressing. Talking how everybody's talking. We're sojourners. We're exiles. We're citizens of heaven. This is not our home. Embrace being different, no matter the consequences. Let's bring this to our next point. Noah is exemplary in patience. Noah is exemplary in patience. These were overwhelmingly wicked times for a long period of time because the building of the ark was not an afternoon project. They probably for a good century, this was Noah's life. Peter points uh, the time frame out. First Peter, he says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Amazing passage. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. Sermon for another time, but this is what I want us to see. When God's what? Patience waited. When? In the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. So he's saying, hey, when the ark was being prepared, 
That was a long stretch of time in a wicked time, and that was a display of God's patience. Patience is tough, right? We want it now. We want the solution now. We want, the, we want it fixed now. We want the answer now. I want my food now. Right? I don't know why I said that one. But, <clears throat> like, we want it right now. Patience is hard. But waiting is a part of God's plan. Waiting is a part of your development. Waiting is a sign of God's grace. And how we wait matters. You with me when I say that? How we wait matters. Like, you wait. Like, you can wait impatiently, full of anxiety and fear and anger, or you can wait patiently. It's not going to change the timeline. Like, it ain't your timeline. It's God's timeline. So you're going to wait, but how we wait matters. Our patience is the display of our peace in wicked times. It shows our confidence in God. Like, this wickedness all around us. God, I, I know you got it. I know you'll address it. I know you'll deal with it. I know you'll reconcile things to yourself. Like, I trust you in this. And sometimes, guys, we get so bent out of shape on things that are way above our pay grade. Can you imagine Noah? Noah was a righteous man. I mean, he cared about godliness. And he was in a world surrounded by wickedness. I imagine he was pretty frustrated. I imagine he was overwhelmed. Can you imagine what they're doing? Can, can you believe what they're doing? Are we going to allow this? Are you going to put up with this? How long are you going to put up with this? What are we going to do about this? This isn't right. It's not just. It's not fair. It's not godly. Can you imagine Moses, or Noah as a righteous man living in these times, how he would feel? God, what are we going to do about this? We? I'll tell you what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to bring judgment on it. Here's what you're going to do about it. You're going to walk with me. You're going to herald righteousness. And also, you're going to chop some more wood. <laughs> and you're going to nail them together. And guess what you're going to do tomorrow? Chop some more wood. Nail it together. And guess what you're doing next month and next year and next decade? You're going to chop some more wood. You're going to nail it together. But the same is true for us. Like We can get so overwhelmed with the wickedness around us. Just frustrated. How can that exist? What's going on here? God, aren't we going to do something about this? We? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring my Savior into the world, reconcile my people back to myself, eventually send my son back on a white horse, make all things new. You? You're going to just walk with me. You're going to herald righteousness. And you're also going to get up and go to work every day. And you're going to come home and you're going to eat dinner with your family. And you're going to sleep well that night. Because our patience shows our confidence in God. God, you got this. Like, I know I'm in the midst of it and it's frustrating, but, but I totally trust you in your plan of salvation to work all things for your good. Noah is also exemplary in faith. Look at uh, Hebrews 11, 7. It says this. But by what? Faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by what? Faith. I can read it. I just want participation. Faith, right? And I love that 
the writer of Hebrews gives us this example of Noah kind of highlighting faith because it helps us better understand what real faith is. Sometimes we think faith is just agreeing with a set of doctrinal statements. That's not what it is. Not, not biblically, right? Faith is, is, is more than that. Like that's why in Hebrews it always says by faith, by faith. Like it's an expression of lived out faith. So part of faith is agreeing with a set of doctrinal principles, but it's so much more than that. It's a belief that kind of penetrates your, your life and reshapes how you live, think, and feel and act. Like this, this is real faith. It's evident. And it's like, well, how do we know that Noah had faith? He built a boat. That's what he did. He did it by faith because he believed in something that was yet unseen. He believed in this coming judgment that God told him about. And because he believed that that is coming, it affected the way that he was living now. He had Faith. Do you believe in events yet unseen? I mean, really, like in a way that shapes how you live. Here's another New Testament reference to Noah. This is Matthew 24 says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. You believe in that day? Does that day affect how you live now? I mean, how by faith are you living because you believe in what's to come? Which would also be a wonderful connection group conversation. Like, tell me about your lifestyle because of faith. What are you doing now because you have faith? What are you not doing now because you have faith? How is faith shaping your life? And we can be so right here and right now and just in the moment, so much so that our priorities get off. That things that aren't that important become really important. Or our fears get off. We start to worry and stress about things that shouldn't worry or cause fear in our life. And if we could just see what is yet unseen. You're like, well, how do you see what's unseen? Faith. By faith, we, we have a, a confidence that this is the future. This is our future that God has promised us. And I so believe it and see it through the eyes of faith that it's affecting how I live now. Like in wicked times, we have to have a faith that gives us a future perspective. So Noah is exemplary in his devotion. He's exemplary in his courage. He's exemplary in his patience. He's exemplary in his faith. And there is a clear contrast in this story between the wickedness of his times and the faithfulness of Noah. All right? So on one level in this story, Noah is this exemplary character. But on a deeper level in the story, God is the more exemplary character. And this is what I don't want us to miss, because sometimes the story of Noah uh, and the flood gets told this way. Noah was good, and everyone else was bad. And God saved Noah, and he destroyed everyone else, so you be good. That's not the gospel. And if you just read this on the surface, that's the, that's the conclusion you think you come to, but that's not what this story is about either. Look back at verse 8. It says, but Noah found what? Favor in the eyes of the Lord. That Hebrew word for favor is the same Hebrew word for grace. And grace means unmerited favor. So yeah, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, but it wasn't favor that he earned or deserved. It was unmerited favor. It was favor because of grace. 
Noah wasn't saved because he was good, but he was good because he was saved. Like his salvation had an impact on his life. You could say that Noah was saved because he was righteous, but he was righteous because of grace. Why was he righteous? Because he found favor, grace. Why did, was he blameless? Because of grace in his life. Why did he walk with God? Because of grace in his life. It's grace. So, guys, listen, Noah is an example. But he's not the hero. Noah is a, an example in this story, but he's not the hero. God's the hero. The only reason Noah was saved was because God came to him. God told him to build a boat. God shut the door in the boat. God kept him safe through the flood. What did Noah do? Believed God. Believed him so much it was evident that he built a boat. But what did Noah do? He believed God. And guys, this is what you have to get. God in the Old Testament, God in the New Testament saves by grace through faith. God saves by grace through faith. So if you're an Israelite reading this story, getting ready to go into the promised land, you're kind of scared of giants, and you're looking for some confidence, the Israelites also knew that they were people who were saved by grace. Because if you go back in Egypt, they didn't do anything to be deserved to come and get rescued. God was just being faithful to his promise way back in Genesis 3. But they know grace is in their past, so they should have confidence in the face of wickedness in their future. Or you take Moses, who's telling this story. That's got to be scary to lead a group of people into these dangerous, wicked times. But Moses has passed. Like, he didn't get in the ark, but he was put in a basket, put in the water. And he sees God's hand of favor, protection, and grace in his life. And if Moses say, like, I see your grace in my past, so I can have confidence in your faithfulness in my future. I can face wickedness all around me because I know God's favor is upon me. His grace is upon me. And if you are somebody who's been saved by grace, you can have confidence in the midst of wickedness all around you. God knows how to save his people. God knows how to keep his promises. So I don't know how big you think your giants are, but they're nothing compared to God, a faithful God, a gracious God. So there's a so what to that. In the face of wickedness, Practice devotion. Have courage. Be patient. Display faith. Because our God is a gracious Savior who can be trusted and cannot be stopped. So church, can you imagine a group of people? And when I say that, I'm talking about us. Can you imagine a group of people that walk with God? I mean, when no one else seems to be walking with God and everybody in the culture seems to be going one direction, that there's a group of people that have this consistent, active, close, ongoing relationship with God. Can you imagine a group of people that have the courage to herald good news of righteousness and holiness despite what the world thinks of them? Like, I don't need your approval. I have God's. And we just have this courage to speak truth and not needing to be accepted or liked by everyone else? Can you imagine a a group of people that display in patience a confidence in God that in the midst of wickedness and brokenness all around us, we still sleep well because we know our God has got this. He will bring all things to completion. He is a good, gracious God who's in control. 
Can you imagine a group of people who actually live by faith, that our eyes are so fixed on a day when the clouds will part and our Lord will return and he will wipe every tear from our eye and make everything new, that we just live differently because we see that day with such confidence? You know how awesome it would be to be a part of a group of people like that? That's the church. That's the church. And for others of you in this room, let me just say this. For over a hundred years, the ark was a warning to wicked people. God takes sin seriously, and his judgment is coming. And it was also an invitation to find mercy, grace, and salvation in the midst of that judgment. And church, thank God for his patience. But the last 2,000 years, the cross of Jesus Christ is a warning to this world that God takes sin seriously, and he will bring judgment upon this earth. And it's also an invitation that you can come and find mercy and grace and refuge from that judgment at the cross. So churches, we take communion. I want us to see this communion as a boat boarding. (laughs) Because judgment is coming. And the body that was broken, Jesus Christ, and the blood that was shed is our only refuge. It's our salvation from this coming judgment. So when we take these elements, would we be reminded of the salvation that it is and that we need, and would we treasure Jesus all the more, and we would praise him all the louder? Because our God is a gracious Savior. He can be trusted, and he cannot be stopped. So let's live like it.